Before I get going too much here, I want to uh, thank a few people. And uh, I want to, of course, thank my partner, uh, who I prefer to teach with above anyone else, which is, um, a, 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 whether she realizes it or not, is a very <laughs> strong compliment. <laughs> it's hard to come out. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, also Tim, who's uh, come in from Seattle, who uh, is a dear friend and uh, a budding teacher on his own right, already teaching a great deal out at the Seattle area. But I wanted to, people to get to know him in different parts of the country. So he willingly came along, uh, minus his uh, family, wife and child. And uh, welcome, welcome, Tim. I really appreciated your presence here. And my wife, Ellen, who's led you in Qigong this week. And uh, I, if you don't get a sense of her sensitivity and tenderness, uh, which to me is infused within how her, she teaches that Qigong, I think very much appreciate her teaching as well. <clears throat> and then your, um, all of your sincerity. I'm not so interested in teaching people who are using meditation for, uh, for the wrong reasons. You know, just, just to sort of uh, dabble in it a little bit. <clears throat> I'm really interested in people using meditation for a depth, in-depth uh, uh, investigation and understanding of what their life is about and, and then following whatever, it, whatever they see towards uh, the course correction. And so uh, all of you, to a person, have shown that sincerity. And I thank you very much for your being able and willing to do that. Uh, before uh, I say much more, I want to mention that um, I, Narayan and I will both be uh, in the dining hall if you, to sign books, if you wish to buy books of ours. Um, I think they forgot to order any new ones, which is too bad because there's only a few in there, but we'll certainly be willing to sign those. And I just want to, for those of you who are interested, I'm having a new book of mine is coming out the first of the year. It's called Awakening, and it deals with some of the topics that I spoke about this week, but not the four foundations. It's really about what awakening is, what's, what's the, what, what happens, what's, what goes on. It's, let's take the mystery out of this thing and really look and see. Uh, how it changes the perspective and what, wh whether that's as uh, fearful as some of us pretend it to be. So it's, Shambhala will be bringing that out uh, January or February. And uh, so I, I want to uh, really start off with that question um, of what, what, what is my life about? It's a very serious question. It's not don't trivialize it because it's, it's a, and you have to follow it. The, the, the Dharma only works within the framework of honesty. And so you say, what do I really want my life to be about? And you know, I'd like it to be about the Dharma, but it really isn't, which is fine. That's, that's an honest statement. Or vice versa, it could be, 
You know, uh, this is something in me is feeling very pulled towards deepening my experience. And, the, and this weekend, that's where my intention lies. But regardless of where you land on your intention for your life, it doesn't mean that's the end product of it. If, if you have other motives besides your own spiritual growth, what I would suggest is to do those other competing motives fully. Like someone came to me one time and said, uh, uh, in an interview, he said, you know, I'm thinking about being a monk, but I'm also thinking about being married. Which one should I do? <laughs> Don't ever ask the teacher that. How would we possibly know? How would we possibly know that? And I said to him, I don't know. I said, it, it doesn't really make any difference. If you, whichever one you select, if you do it full-heartedly, you'll learn and grow from it. Uh, but if you do one half-heartedly, wishing you had done the other, then that competing uh, uh, perception of what I wish I had done will keep you from being very full and complete in either one of those endeavors. So. And that's what I suggest for you. If you decide that you know, your career is the most important thing and whatever it, it might be, then you just give your life over to that. And you see, while you're doing that, what the value that it is giving you is and what the limitation is also within that intentionality. So you, you get a sense of what, it's, what it will feed you because what we think it fe will feed us is not often how it feeds us, one. And the completion of the way it feeds us is never as fulfilling as we imagine it to be. So just keep your eyes open and be honest. And what we often do is because our endeavors don't give us the contentment we yearn for, uh, we... And we, we have such a low self-esteem that many of us do in this culture. We can't assume the responsibility for it not being as content as we wished it to be. So we blame the lack of contentment on circumstances. Oh, if I'd had a better boss, or if I just had this component in my job or that, then it would have worked. But, you know, I, don't do that. Life, doesn't, life is, never fits together like that. This is not a, this isn't a complete, this is a logistic nightmare. You're never going to have the right pieces in order. Never. <laughs> never. It's not going to work that way. I don't care if you meet your, and I don't like this word, but I'm going to, soulmate. <laughs> Let me tell you where your soulmate is. Bihar, India. Okay. Like, why would it be here? <laughs> why wouldn't it be in Nigeria? You know, it's just crazy thinking. Okay, so. <laughs> so don't do, don't do, oh my, you know, don't do that. Say, your willingness to make it work, though, it does need your willingness to make any relationship work. It needs your willingness to really engage in it. Put time into it. You know, really work at it. And not in a superficial way, but in an with an intentionality. And maybe that's the most important thing in your life. But you will see that it's far from being the most contented factor in your life. 
no matter what your relationship is. It just doesn't, there's some part of a form that never full, uh, completely fulfills. Form can't do that. All it can do is give you an experience, you see? And how, how fulfilling is an experience? Well, it's nice as long as it lasts. It's either nice or it's not or it's neutral. Remembering the second foundation. And it, so it lasts a little bit and it's okay and then it doesn't and then it changes. And we, we have this ideal that, you know, th- that once I find the right person or the right job or the right you know, home or something, it'll all like be flat. You know, it'll all be like this uh, forever contentment. What? Come on. (laughs) Has that the way our life's ever been? No, has it ever been like that? It never will be like that. And the quicker we get over this idealism, really, this idealism, especially in relationship, you know, with that perfect partner, you know. And it does because your mind goes like a sine wave and his or her mind goes like a sine wave. And guess what? When two sine waves meet, you're up, he's down, you're down, he's up. Once in a week, the two sine waves meet and it's like, oh, you're so... And then they start moving again. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> just, uh, it's just, it's just pieces coming, conditions, continual movement of conditions in life. But again, we, our temptation is to blame those conditions because they're not in the right order and they're not in the right mix. We, it feels difficult for us to be able to hold the responsibility for our life. You know, we, we just, it's an enormous temptation to just say, well, it would have been better if, it would have been better if, and then we try to fulfill that if. But if there are a hundred people in the room, and let us say that the average age is 40, so that's 4,000 years of human history, and none of you have ever had contentment last longer than a brief period, how many years you more do you have to live until you prove that to yourself? We have four, is it 40,000? No, 4,000, right? 40 times 100 is 4,000. Okay, 4,000 years of human history. Like how, I said, no, I just haven't, you know, I'll keep looking. It's not, you're not going to find it. That's probably the if you took that to heart and really understood that, that you're not going to find it, you would be, you would be so, you'd be laser beam focused on the Dharma. The reason you're not laser beam focused is because you think you will find it. But for some of us, we don't have to live 4,000 years, more years of human history. And we have a sense, a growing sense in ourselves that experience is never going to be complete. It's never going to be fulfilling. It's just going to be an experience. And so when you realize that, then, then it becomes 
at first disturbing to you about what your life is going to be if it's not going to be about the fulfilling fulfillment of, of, it, of it through the different array of activities that we do. And something deeply inside of us starts moving in a completely different direction than that. Even though the mind is very busily uh, working in it the opposite direction. Now you have, to, you have to understand something about the origin of the mind. You know, the thinking process, language, the middle, it's a, it's a protective fun- function. It tries to get food on the plate. It tries to keep what's bad outside. It doesn't want the lion attacking, right? So it's an evolutionary organ that had safety as its mental factor, as its, as its main reason for growth. And that's how language came into being and communication. And, other. and so um, it's not a reliable organ spiritually because it looks in terms of what if this thing attacks you know, how do I handle myself? Defense, defensiveness. How do I protect myself here? What, what can I say? What can't I say? In comparison, it's turned into an evaluative evaluation process as well, which is part of that same sense of attacking spirit, although more nuanced in the cultures we live. So now it's, it's more like, you know, am I as good as? And you know, what about me and all, and all of that. So it's, it's turned against us in some way in, in, in propagating our sense of self in relationship to other people. And so it's not something I can count on to tell me the truth. Now when you see that, when you begin to understand that your thoughts are perceptions very biased perceptions based upon your psychology, based upon the tendencies you have and the um, conditioning you have to like or not like something, but also your psychology back there. And so if your psychology is one of of self-unworthiness, then your thoughts are going to certify the truth of those self-assumptions. And so you can't... But we trust it because we feel that that's the truth about us. Some of you have had insights about the nature and the falsifying factor of thought, that it's not true, it's not reliable. You don't know what that other person is thinking. You just know what you would be thinking if you were that other person. And it's not very nice because you don't think of yourself as being very nice. And so you, you start going, wait a second here. I've, this isn't true. Now, living your dharma, embodying your dharma and living your dharma is essential, especially at this level, where you go, wait a second here. I'm not going to keep thinking this thought. This is ridiculous. I'm just not, I'm going to lay it down. I don't know what that person is thinking, which is the truth. And so I'm not going to be, no longer will I convince myself that my psychology is so obvious that everybody is thinking the same thing about me. 
So this is what I call embodying the Dharma, where you no longer act in accordance to the insane ways that we have lived. Now you want to start bringing out those self-assumptions that keep us on a defensive posture and keep our thoughts laced with all sense of, of insufficiency and unworthiness and you know that you're a mistake in the world and all of that thinking. And don't pretend that they're not there. Even if you're a Harvard professor, in fact, mainly if you're a Harvard professor. (laughs) (laughs) Because you'll find that the higher ranks you go, the more it's often carried by that overachievement is is coming from a sense of self-insufficiency. There's always a compensation factor here. If you're feeling down, less than, you try to build your life up more than. And you start getting a sense of that in yourself. So dealing with the self-assumptions is essential. You've got to start looking at them. You start you have to know what you think about yourself. Not in... You, you want to know what you're thinking about yourself so you can say, this isn't true. And the reason I say that is because no one's self-assumptions are true. They are what we learned to believe about ourselves when we were small and defenseless. And we have harbored those away in our psyche so that we don't let them present their... We don't listen to them any longer because we believe them to be true. Who wants to hear that? So we're constantly trying to offset them with our actions, as I mentioned, in overcompensation, but it's because we believe them to be true. But let's just bring it out again into fresh air and see if they're true. What you've learned, if you do this in the present moment, not from some kind of past memory, or you know, oftentimes in therapy, you don't go, you don't stay present in the therapy. You go back to the times when it was true and that kind of recertifies the truth of it and then you come out. But stay present and you will hear those thoughts in the present moment as being untrue utterances. The, the, the here and now proves them to be so. Proves their falseness. Because what is, where am I governed here? What, in the present moment, where's the, where is it that I am inadequate? Show it to me. You see, well, you, you can't do the deepest physics problem. No, I can't. Show me where I'm inadequate. Well, you can't do rocket science. No, I can't. Show me where I'm inadequate. Has nothing to do with functionality. Well, you're not, you don't sit as well as Narayan. <laughs> Show me where I'm inadequate. <laughs> A little bit there. <laughs> you see, I, what, I, what I'm trying to show you is something very important here. See, it has nothing to do with this comparison stuff. 
You see, this is the Buddha touching the earth. This is it. This is the expression of me. It doesn't have anything to do with adequacy or inadequacy or better than or worse than or evaluated. It has nothing to do with it. I am standing here complete as anyone on this earth does. Complete in my standing. Complete in my presentation. And the moment proves that, validates us, assures that fact, you have no apologies to offer. And when you start offering apologies, stand up straight and embody the Dharma. Hello, how are you? Nice to meet you. So you're the CEO of General Motors. Nice to meet you. You don't, oh, CEO of General Motors. Buddha, hi, how are you, Buddha? (laughs) Glad to see you. (laughs) I want you to get the point. Challenge these things in you. Have a life of challenging. Right? Don't don't fold yourself back into the. Don't fold yourself away. You weren't meant for that. You were meant for your authenticity. That's what the Dharma is trying to bring out of you. It's trying to bring out your authentic expression. That's what it wants. If you have to go through enlightenment to get there, that's fine. But that's what it wants. And for you to deny that is adharmic. And so you just take it on, okay? I don't feel like it inside. I feel like a like less than, but I don't care because the body is not going to move in that direction. And anyone I have around me that tries to perpetuate that sense of self-disadvantage in me is not the right person to be around. So my relationships will change. Now you're living it. You're living it with that confidence that just keeps growing in you. Not an arrogant confidence, but the confidence of our place in life. That no one can take away from you. And you can't take it away from anyone, and so don't try. Don't negate or dismiss people. Because that, in a sense, is saying you shouldn't be here. You're not worth listening to. You're not worth being seen. And they take that message in and it starts reinforcing the inward assumption that they have and you have not done them a good turn by giving them that reinforcement. We're trying to bring all of us together here. This is a worldwide effort. This is not about us in this room. This is a, we're lifting the species up through the way we act, through the way we are with each other through our willingness to abide in the truth instead of all of this cultural programming that we've learned. And so if you've learned something on this retreat that is very important to you, that has stuck, that is an insight, then live that insight. Bring it into your heart. Don't go back. 
That's how the paradigm shifts. The paradigm doesn't shift by seeing it and staying in it. It shifts by seeing it and changing accordingly. And you will start stepping out of yourself, believe it or not, from your confidence of being, from your assured place on this earth. That is the necessary ground, foundation, on which you can step out of yourself. You can't do it otherwise. If the ground is shaky, there will be no foundation for you to be able to do that. And it is only when you're stable in oneself that you ask questions about yourself because you want to know what is there. You want to know about yourself. Until then, you'll be too afraid to ask those questions because you're afraid of what will be revealed about you, that you believe about yourself. So you won't ask any questions at all about yourself. Why would you? You know the idiot you are, the jerk the incompetent. Why do you want that to be seen? You see? You see how this works? It comes from love. When you really know what that word, you know it, you know it from the inside. It's not just love of you, but everybody, you want everyone to rise, rise up. Everyone. Okay, all. We know our way now. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I um I think I spoke too soon in the beginning of this retreat about the fact that it's different on the New Year's retreat regarding getting sick, <laughs> because um, it seems to have spread as we have um, made our way throughout the week. So I, I want to encourage you to take care of yourself and um, you know do whatever you need to do to take care of your body. I, there's a wonderful um, little little thing by E. E.B. White, I get up every morning determined to change the world and have one hell of a good time. Sometimes this makes planning the day difficult. (laughs) It kind of says it all, doesn't it? (laughs) You know, we have these really good aspirations. We have these really great intentions about ourselves, about others, about the world. And... um, and we also have something conflicting going on within us. We have this conflicting desire to go towards comfort. You know, it's kind of kind of inbuilt within us. We have this conflicting desire to try to get some degree of pleasure. And you know, I mean, this is not this is not inherently a problem. It's more that when we're tense and tight and 
I don't know, when our aspirations aren't big enough, it's problematic, you know? Because comfort is just never going to be enough. It's just never going to be enough. And pleasure is going to be one of those things that comes and goes. I remember my early retreats and feeling that the atmosphere here was so barren. You know, it was just, there was nothing. And every so often, I I set a three-month retreat fairly early on, and somebody would leave a cookie outside of my door, like, you know, maybe once a week, and I would feel, oh, I can stay one more day. (laughs) You know? I mean, this cookie makes it possible for me to continue to stay. And it was, it was just a little bit of, of comfort, a little bit of pleasure that I felt that I desperately needed at that point to be able to just continue on to discover the difference really between pleasure and joy. You know, I was talking in the beginning about um, refuge and about, I, I actually have done the chanting sheets, want to change it into lasting refuge rather than just refuge. But you know, we chant that every night. I take refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. Uh, Nothing else is my lasting refuge. And of course, we do have other refuges in our lives. In a rich, full life, of course, we have other refuges in our life. This life is not barren, and it's not a life of deprivation. It's really to look more deeply. And there's a wonderful... um, there's a wonderful title of a, of a Dharma article by Tanjev Tanisaro Bhikkhu that says, Trading Candy for Gold. You know, trading Candy for Gold. And so it's kind of along those lines that we are releasing and renouncing and letting go. And all of these words don't always sound so great to us, you know, because what are we releasing into? What are we letting go into? Do we feel that we are full enough within to be able to let go? Oftentimes we don't. And that's the path of practice, is gradually, 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 and oftentimes it is, as I've said before, quite gradual. Um, Something begins to fill our hearts. This inner contentment begins to fill our hearts, and it's almost like a secret treasure. You can still go to the grocery store, and you really want to look normal. You You really do. You don't want the practice to make us stranger than we already are. But... You know, to just, to just live a quite an ordinary life and yet to recognize that once you have discovered the Dharma, there's this secret treasure that one has, that one knows, that one can contact, that one can touch, you know? And that is inevitably shared with others. It's not something you can't share. It kind of just moves out of you in an inevitable kind of way. Rodney was talking about idealism, and I think it can be so strong in spiritual life. You know, we can be idealistic in many different areas, but we get to the spiritual life, and it's completely, utterly, totally idealistic. And we have to ground it. We have to bring it down and let go of what we think is going to happen and what we hope is going to happen and all of these kinds of things. Because... um, you can live a life of utter dedication and earnestness and um, you know, practice. And you are not going to be exempt from your life falling apart at some point or another. Because you know, no one is. No one is exempt from that. So it doesn't have to do with any kind of superstition. You know, that I'll, I'll do this or I'll do that. I'll, I'll 
you know, sit every day, I'll practice as hard as I can, and I'll be able to keep this, or I'll be able to keep that. I think it's a something that maybe we begin the practice with is this kind of hope, you know. And then as we move more deeply and we as we observe and as we look about this world and as we look at different people's lives, we begin to see for ourselves that it's kind of a level of spiritual maturity that everybody's life is going to fall apart in some way or another. You know, that sickness, old age, and death are just rumors at certain points in a life. <laughs> you know, it's rumored. But, um, but it's a reality for each one of us. You know, the Buddha died of um, mushroom poisoning, um, ate bad mushrooms, had a sangha that seemed to be quite... Uh, I don't know, divided at times. His cousin tried to run him over with a, um, a mad elephant <laughs> at a certain point. So, you know, it wasn't like there wasn't conflict in the life of, of someone who had utterly awakened. Yeah, it seems like he had this evil cousin who was always after him and <laughs> jealous and at one point sicked a, a, a wild mad elephant at him. And of course, you know, these stories are always so great. The elephant's like rushing towards him, about to kill him. And um, the Buddha starts, um, you know, kind of exuding loving kindness, exuding. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you know. and so the elephant bows down in front of him. <laughs> and we've got more, more years of life out of the life of the awakened one. Um, this is not a good thing to try at home. Mm. Joseph has a very good story about. Um, Try it with your canary. <laughs> <laughs> Joseph's story about this is that um, he was practicing metta, practicing loving kindness, and um, he was walking along a country road. And I don't know what the dogs are around here like these days. Um, I used to know every single dog, but I haven't gotten out much this week. But anyway, um, so he came upon a, a, a dog, and from his description, the dog was quite small. But anyway, <laughs> the dog um, was, was also quite aggressive and really going after him. And so Joseph, um, Joseph started you know, exuding metta, and, uh, you know, but towards the dog. And the dog came over and nipped him in the ankle. <laughs> Because this is called manipulative metta. <laughs> and this is not in the spirit of loving kindness. <laughs> so I digressed a little bit. Let me try to get more on track. Mm. Okay, so, um, so in terms of what I was talking about with these conflicting intentions, um, you know, intentions do guide our lives, and so it's essential that these intentions be conscious, that we be awakened, aware of these con- um, of these intentions that we have. One of my well, my my root teacher, my my true teacher, my real teacher, passed away in two thousand and nine, um, and when I went to his um, funeral in Taiwan. Uh, there was this big poster board with what he kind of left us with as his intention for the world. And his intention was, I always talk about him at the end of a retreat because I want to bring him into the room. Um, His intention was, although this universe may someday perish, my vows are eternal. When I first saw this, I thought, ooh, you know, this universe is going to someday perish? Well, who knows? Who knows? But Although this universe may someday perish, my vows are eternal. 
And that's something really powerful, you know, really strong. So to look at really what our vows are, you know, what our aspirations are, how we do want to set the course of our lives, what we do want to guide us in our lives. You know, at this funeral, um, it was really beautiful. They had a, a tree, and um, he had planned his whole funeral quite, quite brilliantly. So it was a way to both experience the humanness of grief and to not ignore the loss, which he knew that people would experience, which we all did quite profoundly. And at the same time, the inevitability of being a human, being a human being, you know, being awake in this life. So there was a tree there, and at one point, everybody wrote down their intentions, their aspirations on paper Bodhi leaves, and then the Bodhi leaves were hung up on the tree. So about 30,000 people were at this funeral, so perhaps you know 20,000 um, leaves from these trees. And just some way of remembering our ten- intentions and our, and our aspirations. And not, you know, in terms of what I was talking about before, um, that lives fall apart, no matter how awakened one is, the whole point of the Dharma is can the vow, can the aspiration support us? Can the aspiration help us to go through those times, those inevitable times in life? Um, And just talking about the realities of life, of old age, sickness, and death, um, can the Dharma rise up to meet us? And the Dharma does rise up to meet us. The Dharma does rise up to meet us in a life of practice. It is really different. A life when we're not um, practicing and training our minds and a life in which there is that very clear intention to align our lives with the truth of things. We've had a little bit of a motif through this this week, um, which is... um, one of us saying to one another, you'll die like that. You know, when I first came, uh, that's how Rodney greeted me because I was a little bit late. And um, <laughs> so I'm not sure how I was going to die, maybe always being late. But, um, but then I wanted his teapot, his uh, kettle in his room, and he wouldn't give it to me. So, I mean, understandably. But anyway, what I said to him is, you'll die like that. So, and then I, I heard a couple of yogis, you know, a couple of practitioners. So it's funny, you know, like in this moment, you'll die like that, right? But there's a reality to it as well. You know, what's, what, how are things right now? Is there clear uh, intention? You know, is there the kind of um, aspiration towards compassion and towards a greater degree of wisdom and understanding and absolutely towards metta? You know, metta is something that can accompany us every day. Metta can be an ally in our lives. It's not something superficial. Sometimes it's like the poor cousin of Vipassana. Vipassana, go through it. You know, macho, you know. Um, just, just go through everything cowboy style. Um, there is a center I've heard about out west. I don't know if, if it still exists, but it was called the John Wayne Dharma Center. <laughs> so there's kind of like, you know, just, just moving through everything. And of course, this is great. This is brilliant. It's heroic. It's courageous. You know, we have to sit in the fire of things. But we can't do that without metta. We really cannot do that without metta. Metta needs to permeate and invade 
um, all aspects of our practice at all times. It's an absolutely essential element, and it is not a poor cousin of Vipassana, not in any way whatsoever. You know, by Vipassana right now, I'm saying wisdom and insight and seeing into things the way they are. Metta has to uh, accompany every every breath. And if we recognize it as permeating the very air around us, then it makes it possible for that to happen. But again, it's a training. You know, it's a training. It's something that we take up as, as a practice. And I think you have to be creative with it as well. Um, for some of you, you're really well-versed in metta in this room. For others of you, you just really heard about it um, now. And there's both the formal practice, which we've been offering to some degree on this week, on this week, and there's also a very creative practice where you come up with your own phrases, you know. And you're not—it's not wishful thinking. You're not like, oh, you know. It's just knowing what you know within. It's understanding what you know within, and training your heart in that direction. But you want to be um, somewhat creative about it. I mean, in my very early years of practice, when I first um, learned about metta, my phrase was, "May I not be a jerk." It was really helpful. Yeah, it was an extraordinarily helpful phrase. So you, you, you kind of want to break it up and not be too, um, I don't know, superstitious about it or, or um, overly respectful you know, of the traditional practice. It's, we have to learn the, pr- the principles of the traditional practice. And you know, I have, I have uh, enormous reverence for the practice that has been held for over 2,500 years by human beings. I mean, enormous, um, enormous gratitude and appreciation. And to, to make it one's own as well is really quite an important part of this path. This teacher I was telling you about, uh, Shifu, Master Sheng Yen, he said this, Hikers know that there are no passable roads in a virgin forest. However, a road will open up when you pull away the grass, thorns, and wisteria. Swimmers know that there are no paths in the water, but as you swim, you will create a pathway. Cultivation is similar. You only need to get on the path and walk, and you will create your own path. The roads walked by the ancient patriarchs are theirs, not yours. You must depend on yourself to open up your own road. Yeah, it's really beautiful. Um, I wanted to... um, I wanted to just say just a, a word or two about my father who passed away in March. And um, the reason I want to is because he was such a quirky and eccentric person, and he was such a swimmer. Um, and I used to talk about him at the end of every retreat because he always, you know, at the age of 91, he always had a new companion. Um, he always, at the age of 90, you know, someone uh, asked him to marry uh, her. Um, you know, I always had these these really um, quirky stories about him that I could try to find a Dharma lesson out of. Sometimes it was a bit of a stretch, but I did my best. Um, but I don't, you know, now there's no more stories. Now there's no more fresh stories. Um, so I still want to remember him because he's part of my lineage. And um, one thing that was interesting and wonderful about him is that he was a swimmer and he was a lifeguard. And he, um, he used to practice preventative wisdom. You know? So he hardly ever had to jump in the water. He always, he was really good at yelling. So he could you know, yell at kids to like, stop running 
and do this and do that, and adults as well. But it was preventative um, wisdom. You know, it was so it was so wonderful. He he didn't have to actually, you know, do what some other younger lifeguards might have to do, because um, because he was kind of on top of it. You know, he was quite mindful. He was quite awake and aware in that dimension of his life, and it benefited countless beings in this world. Actually, I mean, extraordinary number of people that he taught to swim, and without people knowing how to swim, people drown. You know, people get themselves in trouble. So something, something quite lovely that I wanted to say. Um, I, I do want to say something about sitting. Um, <laughs> Rodney's teasing me so much about the sitting. But um, it's really important. It's really important to sit every day and to sit even for a few minutes every day. Uh, these days, what I'm in favor of is when you get up in the morning before you, you know, I mean, certainly before the email, certainly before the email, but even before, you know, breakfast, even before a cup of tea, peeing is fine. But other than that, to go right to your cushion or to go right to your chair and sit for even a few minutes, it sets an imprint for the rest of the day. And it makes it not idealistic. Because, you know, you can have this idealism all day long. I'm going to sit, I'm going to sit, I'm going to sit, I'm going to sit. And then, you know, you go to sleep and you haven't sat. So to um, start this imprint, this, this putting your body behind your aspirations, that's a big part of sitting, is that you're lining yourself up. You know, there's some way that you're actually putting your body behind your intentions, behind your aspirations. And so it's more than what it looks like. You know, in Zen practice, they talk about you're already, it's, it's enlightenment. You know, you're being the Buddha just to sit. You are expressing your Buddha nature just to sit. You know, there's something about staying still with the intention to calm the mind and explore the realities of things that is quite, um, quite something. I don't know that anything can take the, the place of it. Sometimes people say, you know, I'm just doing it in my everyday life, so it doesn't matter. That's something that, you know, people are fond of saying these days. And I don't know, I never, I never believe it. I never see the evidence in front of me. I never see the transformation of life um, with that kind of perspective or approach or way of going about this. I think it has to be more rigorous. You know, in my experience anyway, I pass this on to you. It has to be more rigorous. It has to be more, more of a loving discipline. You know, there's something about staying still and um, coming into the posture. And I'm not talking about you know, the, the cross-leg posture. Those of you on chairs are just as good. I always laugh when we say, you know, when you're on a, a cushion, you know, it's, you, it's fine to move to a chair. And all the people in the chairs are thinking, this is not a piece of cake you know, to, to have to sit in a chair. It's, it's got its own um, difficulties. But anyway, sitting on a cushion, sitting on a bench, sitting on a chair, staying still is a basic statement of non-reactivity. You know, you're not reacting to what's going on. You know? You're encouraging this inner sense of ease and spaciousness and capacity to grow in the confidence that you can open to whatever may be occurring. And then going back to the fact that lives fall apart because this is just the nature of things, this is the nature of lives, then greater capacity greater confidence emerging to be able to hold it all, 
to do this enormous kind of um, transformation where instead of a life of, you know, you begin with, with hopes and dreams and all of that, then it kind of, you know, starts going south a little bit in terms of, of the realities of life coming in. Um, then this spiritual maturity being able to meet it all you know, and transform every single element in our lives so that it's not wonderful and it's not dire in terms of conditions. It's just how it is. And then that which is truly um, transcendent within us has a chance to thrive, absolutely has a chance to thrive. And the promise of the Buddha becomes not just a rumor, not just a, a good idea, but something that we know within ourselves. Um, I think I better stop. Um, yeah. I was going to do this after, but I do want to thank you so much. Our ongoing friendship over all these years has been transformative for both of us. I speak for you. <laughs> and Tim, it's been just wonderful to spend the week with you. Thank you so much. And Ellen, thank you so much. Yes, I felt you coming out of your month retreat just, you know, it just kind of really held held the group, so thank you. And I forgot you. <laughs> always a, a privilege, always an extraordinary thing. Um, you know, I mean, is, everybody's so familiar, and when I uh, come on a retreat these days, every, you know, I know so many of you, and so automatically there's this, there's this wonderful familiarity and love. Um, but I, I like the circle getting bigger. So those of you whom I've gotten to know through this week, it's been really a joy to work with you. And as Rodney said, the sincerity and the earnestness has been palpable. And that is really wonderful as a teacher. So thank you. So first, I'd like to just express my appreciation for being up with Narayan and Rodney. Just can feel the heartfelt, the full-heartedness of the expression of the Dharma and really the commitment to ending suffering. So thank you. I really appreciate being able to assist. And I'd also like to express my appreciation for all of you. You know, reflecting back that first Rainy, was it rainy on Friday night? You know, the, the fatigue, the tiredness of the faces. And now if you could just see how transformed you are, how light you are. Someone left me a note saying that something has shifted and something has shifted for all of you. And also appreciation for the staff and for the center and the generations of staff who have kept supporting this practice. I mean, the stillness sometimes felt like a roar of quiet that just got into the cells. So thank you all. I'd just like to share a few words about going back into our lives and how to bring the Dharma back into our life. So I was taking a walk through the woods and there's these many different paths and I came to one juncture and I said, okay, this is the way to go. So I started walking down that path and I stopped and said, maybe it's not, my impulse isn't quite right. So, so often we go through life, we take this impulse, our urgency to act feels like this is the right direction. But the Dharma and mindfulness brings this questioning of that, this pause that allows us to reflect and see, is this really the right way? 
So I went back and looked at the little sign and said, no, that's not the right way. This is the right direction. So I'd like to offer three simple words to help us find that roadmap, to realign ourselves with the practice when life becomes very hurried and stressful, or even during our practice when we're subtle and should I focus on my breath? Should I do metta? Should I cultivate this? And to help give us a guide. So the first word is simplicity. And when we have a choice of path to go toward that of simplicity, of releasing the noise, the idea, the complexity of what our minds say need to be done, going back to the the quiet, using that as as a benchmark. The second one is of compassion. And compassion for me has this quality of willingness to turn toward the difficult, turning toward what we have, we have hurts, our pains, the willingness to have our hearts quiver in response to pain. The heart of this is the non-resistance toward all experience. And the third one is that of wonder. It's so often from the standpoint of noise, of, of, of thought and complexity of life, the releasing of that seems empty, seems barren, without any kind of interest, without anything that's worth going into? Why would I give up this excitement of, of my mind, of my things I love to do, <clears throat> the things I get so excited about, and also the things that get it so engaged in the negative parts, the anxiety, the fear, the anger. So wonder helps us to release this need to label, to know, to go into this non-knowing mind. So there's a very intimate relationship to life that's much closer than our thoughts. And in that wonder, there's actually a very deep richness. It's much richer and much more profound than anything our minds and our thoughts can come up with. So bring forth these three words of simplicity, of compassion, and of wonder. (laughs) And so in this way, we can see our practice and our life aren't two different things that our life is our practice, and our practice becomes our life. Okay, thank you. So we'll just do a little bit of metta, if um, everyone can really completely, truly relax. And just the recognition of moving out into a more complex set of conditions, both delightful as well as probably challenging and sometimes incredibly difficult. But here you are now. Here you have chosen to be. And so relaxing into this environment that you've become familiar with, that's become home for you, just because you've been here for this amount of time. And relaxing into the chest area, the heart area. And of course, if you want to put a hand on your heart, you should feel really free. Sometimes it just makes it more tangible, more palpable, more tender. And just to begin by recognizing the efforts that you've made throughout the week. It's tremendous 
tremendous effort to go against the flow of things. And some appreciation for the courage and endurance, the patience, the kindness it's taken to sustain your attention here, not to flee. And the recognition that you've been here, not just for yourself, but for your family, for your friends, for the people that you're having difficulty with, for the people that you don't know in this world. Whether conscious or not, there is some way that you do know that you are practicing for the benefit of all beings, including yourself. So just some sense of gratitude and appreciation for your efforts. It's so easy to second-guess oneself. Should have been better. Could have done that sitting. Could have been more attentive, more awake. Let it go. Couldn't have been any other way than the way that it has been. And now it's over, and here's the kind of flooding of the heart. The flooding of the heart with all sorts of things, the richness of things here and now, the fullness of life, along with this element of love. Allowing this love to be experienced. It's you. It's who you are. (coughs) Letting it be connected to knowing here and now. letting it very naturally and organically flow out into this room. Holding each one of us with a heart of loving kindness. a heart of appreciation and gratitude. It's so hard to look at oneself in the way that's being suggested. Recognizing the courage and endurance and patience of everyone who's been with you throughout this week. Letting it flow out and envelop this whole building, including the staff that has served, sometimes very obviously, moments of kindness, actions that have helped. 
and other times just completely unseen. I still don't know what the maintenance guys are doing downstairs in the basement. We have no sense sometimes of the unseen workings here, and yet it's sustaining, it's holding. Gratitude as well for those who helped you to get here for this week. Whatever that means, it's pretty big, those who have helped us to get here this week. And then letting it flow into this very world as far and as wide as possible. Blessing and wishing that all beings be well, whether we like them or not, whether we have a personal connection with them or not, whether they're in our life or not. Connecting with the sorrows and troubles of being human, and recognizing that each one of us has Buddha nature as well. So holding this richness right now, may all beings have ease of mind. May all beings have fullness of heart. May all beings live in love and in compassion. May all beings be free of inner suffering. May all beings be free of outer suffering. May all beings live in love and in compassion. May all beings live with peacefulness. May all beings know joy. May all beings live in love and in compassion. To end with a poem by Lynn Unger, Thanksgiving. I have been trying to read the script cut in these hills, a language carved in the shimmer of stubble in the solid lines of soil spoken in the thud of apples falling and the rasp of corn stalks finally bare. The pheasants shout it with a rusty creak as they gather in the fallen grain. The blackbirds sing it over their shoulder in parting. And gold leaf illuminates the manuscript where it is written in the trees. Transcribed onto my human tongue, I believe it might sound like a lullaby or the simplest grace at table. Across the gathering stillness, simply this, for all that we have received, dear God, make us truly grateful.
Thank you for allowing us to share. Um, silence is broken, which I've always wanted to sing, but I won't. Um, so um, just kind of start, you know, start, start moving in. Start moving in, okay? Or move out, but move in. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.